بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف المرسلين سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين I welcome you to session one to the path to taqwa the way and means of achieving the quality known as taqwa uh, Today's session is focused on the what, the why and the how of taqwa um, today's lesson will be fairly easy, inshallah. We want to ease you into the topic. Next week's lesson will be a bit more complicated than what we have on offer today. First and foremost, I would like to join taqwa to fasting by quoting probably the most famous verse that is ever quoted in relation to fasting. This is verse 183 in Surah Al-Baqarah, the cow. Where Allah says, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا كتب عليكم الصيام كما كتب على الذين من قبلكم لعلكم تتقون All those who have faith, all people of Iman Generally when Allah addresses us in this manner People of faith It is the equivalent of Allah saying if you really have faith, you, go, you are going to do the following. It is something that wives sometimes do to their husbands. They, like in Afrikaans, they say it like this, Aseya manas. Aseya manas. Right? Now, a better way of saying that would be, Oh men. Oh men. Meaning, vaisos. Vaisos. So, this is how Allah does it. Ya ayuwaladina amanu. All those who have faith. All those who have faith. If you are really a person of faith, now I'm speaking to you. And your faith should be pushing you to do whatever I'm going to be saying next. So, kutiba alaykum usiyam, prescribed to you. Prescription means it is made compulsory. While proscription means it is made haram. So, when Allah prescribes, He makes compulsory. When He proscribes, He makes haram. So prescribed to you is fasting. As how it was prescribed to those before you. People before us, whether they were the Jews and the Christians, they also fasted. They didn't fast exactly the way we fast. There was no month of Ramadan for them, but they had their own types of fasting. And you will still find Christians up till today's time performing some type of the fast or the other. But then Allah goes further and Allah says, that the reason for the fasting is لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ So that you might gain or that you might attain to the quality known as taqwa. I want to just briefly ask the question, how does siyam fasting produce the quality of taqwa? And also I want to focus on the idea that there is no ibadah that Allah asks us to perform but that it has an inner dimension. Like for example, salah. What is the true purpose of salah? One of the verses in the Quran where Allah speaks of salah, then Allah ends and Allah says, but dhikrullah is akbar. The dhikr of Allah is greater. Some people misunderstand this and they think it means to make dhikr is greater than to make salah. No. What it means is there are two types of salah. There is the salah where you are mindful of Allah. You are cognizant of the fact that you are standing in the presence of Allah. And you are focused on Allah. You are not focused on your worldly needs and desires. 
You are not focused on your business and occupation. That type of salah is the greater salah. And then you have another salah that is a technical salah in that you are fulfilling the arkan, the essentials of the salah, and the technical shurut, the prerequisites of salah. You are in a state of tahara. You are in qiyam. And you will now be in ruku. And you will now be in sujood. But you are not mindful of Allah. And this salah is devoid of its true purpose, which is remembrance of Allah. This is why Allah says also in the Quran, وَيْلٌ لِلْمُصَلِّينَ الَّذِينَ هُمْ أَنْ صَلَاتٍ سَهُونَ وَهُوْ أَنْتُ ذَوْزُ مَيْكْ صَلَاةٍ Who are unmindful of the salah that they are in. They are technically in salah. They have connected with their phone to Allah. But they are not having a conversation with Allah. Allah is sitting on the other side of the phone and Allah is waiting for the conversation to begin. The connection has been made, but nothing is coming across. All that is coming across is business, business. That is what is coming across. Or my goodness, my goodness. That is what is coming across. Because you connect with Allah using your mind, your consciousness. And that is what Allah then hears. And that is what Allah then sees. While what Allah wants to hear is, Oh Allah, you are the ever merciful. Shower me with mercy. Oh Allah, you are the all forgiving. Forgive me, oh Allah. Allah wants to hear you speaking to him. Allah wants to hear you asking him. So every ibadah has a hidden or inner dimension. With regards to fasting, the hidden, and in, the hidden and inner dimension is that it allows you to obtain or attain to taqwa. And this means again, just like salah, that there is a technical fasting and then there's a spiritual fasting. Technical fasting is when you abstain from food, drink, and sexual intimacy during the days of Ramadan. Spiritual fasting is when you use the opportunity of staying away from food, drink, and sexual intimacy to build a relationship with Allah. How would you be building that relationship with Allah? It has been noticed that man has two primary instincts. The first instinct is the instinct of survival of the self. The second is the instinct of survival of the species. It is two of the most powerful instincts that drive man. If you look at the three things that you are asked to avoid, eating and drinking, it is connected to survival of the self. You eat and drink on a daily basis because this instinct is pushing you to survive. Why do you engage in physical intimacy? While you might not know the answer, it is instinctively linked to the idea of survival of the species. So the idea is, if you can bring these two basic instincts under control, you become the master of yourself. And when you become the master of yourself, you will easily attain to taqwa. But what happens unfortunately? Many people don't eat, they don't drink, they don't engage in sexual intimacy in accordance with the books of fiqh. But then they engage in other acts of sin. Maybe they are watching pornography. Maybe they are listening to something that should not be listened to. Maybe they are in the company of people whose company they should not be in, like a girlfriend or a boyfriend, etc. So what actually happens is we sit with the problem, we sit with the problem that people do not commit what is haram one month of the year, but they commit what is haram 12 months of the year. 
What is the sense in that? So this is why the Prophet Allah had said, رُبَّ الصَّائِمٍ لَيْسَ لَهُ مِنْ صِيَامِهِ إِلَّا الْجُوءُ وَالْأَطَشِ Many a person will fast, but they will not get anything from their fasting, except that they will go hungry and they will go thirsty. The reason for this, they are performing technical fasts, not spiritual fasts. If you are performing the spiritual fast, then you will attain to that quality that is known as taqwa. And Allah knows best. Right. So, so the first question that you want to ask today is, what is this thing known as taqwa? Ulama, when they discuss the word taqwa, they say that this word comes from an Arabic verb, which is waqa yaqi. And waqa yaqi means to protect, to protect, to act as a shield. Like in one of the du'as we make every day, we say, waqi na adab al-nar. Na means us. And qi is the imperative, the command form of waqa yaqi. So qi, protect, na us. Waqina adab al-nar. So protect us from the yalfire, O Allah. Waqayaqi, wiqaya, tuqat, taqwa. All mean the same thing. To protect. And ulama describe the quality of taqwa in various ways, but it all comes together in this one passage. Taqwa is when the servant of Allah. So first and foremost, you recognize that you are Allah's servant. And actually, to, to, to be exact, the proper translation is not servant. The proper translation is slave. Now normally the word slave has a bad connotation. But there are certain words. The word when used on its own has a bad connotation. But when it is connected to a certain person, then it no longer has a bad connotation. Like in today's time we have various type of trades and arts and crafts, etc. Now if I were to tell you that I'm a gardener, what I do is I do gardening. Alhamdulillah, a halal and honest living. But most people don't look up to gardening. But what if I were to tell you I'm Mandela's gardener? Now suddenly I'm somebody. So it's the same with the word slave. The word slave on its own means that I'm robbed of a certain degree of freedom. But the moment I say that I am Abdullah, I'm the slave of Allah, now it means something different. Yeah, it means that I was created to serve Allah. And whether I want to serve Him or I don't want to serve Him, I'm still caught up in this. The difference with a servant and a slave is that a servant can decide not to work for you and seek employment elsewhere. A slave cannot. The truth of Allah is that we run away from Allah right into Allah. There is no escaping Allah. We run away from His anger and we flee towards his mercy. But there is no escaping Allah. So the servant of Allah seeks protection against Allah's anger and punishment by obeying his commands and avoiding that which he prohibits. Thus, loosely, is taqwa. Two things. Why would I seek protection against Allah's anger and his punishment? Isn't Allah arhamur rahimin? The most merciful of all those who have mercy. And this is a thing that Christians get Muslims on. They always say, why would you fear your God? You should only love Him. The Christians are the people of, of, of what I would like to call fake love. 
Everything by them is love, 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 love. But if you press them hard enough, then the truth is exposed. To give you an example, in one debate that I had with two individuals, the debate started out like this. I introduced myself, they introduced themselves, and then they said, Jesus loves you. And already I was upset. Because I lie. So I said, well, my God doesn't love you. And if you die, you are going to go to hell. And then they responded, well, that's going to that's what's going to happen to you also. Then I said, right, now it is begin. Now it is begin. Before that was here, begin to Before that was a lich. Before that, you were fishing. And I'm not a fish. Right? So I just said the record straight. Any true God has two aspects to him. And since there's only one, it means Allah has two sides to him. Allah loves us in two ways. And in those two ways, all parents should love their children also. Allah loves us and he gives. In Quran and Hadith, Allah says that he is basit. He is the one that stretches out his hand. So he has a giving love, a soft love. And if you love your children, you want to give them things. And then Allah says, He is qabid. He is the one that pulls his hand back and closes it. He doesn't want to give you. That's the hard love. And to be honest, if you really love your children, you wouldn't give them also. So there are things, if you love your children, you're going to give it. And there are things, if you don't love them, you are not going to give it to them. Let's give you some examples. Uh, if, if you look at the example of food, my children need to eat food on a daily basis, and it needs to be good quality food. So if I really love them, I will be giving them carrots, <laughs> and I will be giving them some other veggies, etc., etc. And if I really love them, I will give them perhaps sweets, but in small amounts. And I will tell them, no, you may not have any more sweets beyond that. Hard love, soft love. If we offer our children only hard love, they become psychopaths. If we offer our children only soft love, they become spoiled. They become spoiled. And perhaps they will attain to happiness in your house and while you are alive, but they will never be able to be married in a lasting and happy marriage. Because if he is a male, he will expect his wife to be his mother. And if she is a female, she will expect her husband to behave like her father and to continue to spoil her. That relationship will never work. So you need to have two sides with your children. You need to have soft love and you need to have hard love. And Allah does the same. How does Allah generally do this? Allah has created a world of cause and effect. Where if you choose something, something else is chosen along with it. If you choose to swear at somebody, then that somebody won't like you. The swearing is the cause, the effect is that they don't like you. So when you chose to swear, you also chose the effect known as dislike. You cannot avoid the effect if you have chosen the cause. If you choose to put your finger in the fire, the fire will burn you. The fire is the cause, the effect is the burning. A stupid person says, I wanted to put my finger in the fire, but I didn't want to burn. Because the two are connected to one another. And Allah in his wisdom, and in his mastery of all things that is, 
created the world in such a manner that not only when you choose are there dunya effects, there are also akhira effects. And those akhira effects can be good and it can be bad. So the akhira effect, one is jannah, the other akhira effect is jahannam. This is how Allah has created the world. And Allah generally leaves the system to look after itself. Why in the first place should there be a Jannah? And why should there be a Jahannam? Because Allah has created us humans in such a manner that we don't do anything unless it will bring forward a benefit or it will push away a harm. And Allah has created the ultimate benefit to attain to Jannah. Ma la ra'at that which no eye had ever seen. Wala udunun sami'at. No ear had ever heard melodies the like of it. Wala khatara ala qalbi bashar. And no human heart or mind has ever imagined the like that is Jannah. And what is the ultimate harm to avoid? Jahannam. Which is exactly the opposite of Jannah. You have not seen horrible things as you can potentially see in Jahannam. You have not heard sounds that fill you with terror equal to what will be heard in Jahannam. And if you were to ever imagine in your worst possible nightmare what Jahannam is like, you will find that Jahannam is worse than that. May Allah protect us from it, and may Allah grant us entry into paradise. At the end of the day, success as a Muslim is, فَمَنْ زُغْزِحَ عَنِ النَّارِ وَأُدْخِلَ الْجَنَّةَ فَقَدْ فَازِ He who has been distanced from Yalfaya and allowed entry into paradise, surely such a person is, Successful. So, seeking protection against Allah's anger and punishment is just the opposite side of loving Him. The two sides are always there. And this is inevitably done by obeying Allah's commandments and avoiding that which He prohibits. Let's say this in a different way. I want to have a relationship with Allah. I am makhluk. I am creation. And I want to have a relationship with my khaliq, with my creator, the being that has made me what I am. In order to have a relationship with that being, I must do things that, is, that are pleasing to that being. And I must avoid things that are displeasing to that being. In the framework of a human relationship, we speak of a relationship bank account. And when you do things that are pleasing, we call it a deposit. And when you do things that are displeasing, we call it a withdrawal. And every bank likes deposits, and they don't like withdrawals. And when your withdrawals exceed your deposits, they close your account. They close your account. So on the day of Qiyamah, when Allah weighs our deeds, and Allah is checking which side is heavier, the good deeds or the bad deeds, it is your deposits being weighed against your withdrawals. And if at the end, you have nothing in your account, it means you need to go to Jahannam. And if at the end there is something in your account, it means that you go towards paradise because you can now afford the fee, the price of Jannah. And Allah reminds us in the Quran, Allah in nasil atallahi, or rather in hadith, Allah in nasil atallahi, ghaliyah. Behold, the product that is Jannah is very expensive. Very expensive. Jannam is cheap. You can commit one sin and you can buy yourself a palace in Jannam. A palace. A Jannah that's expensive. 
Then you're going to have to be doing hundreds of good deeds and quality good deeds. Now to continue. So if Allah has two sides, I'm supposed to strive to please Allah, meaning I'm hoping for His mercy, and I'm avoiding His anger, then that means I as a Muslim must live in two conditions. I must live in the condition of khawf, which is fear, and I must live in the condition of raja, which is hope. I constantly hope in Allah's mercy, and I fear Allah's anger. Once the Prophet of Allah went to go visit a young Sahabi who was on his deathbed. And then he asked the Sahabi, Kayfa tajiduka? How are you today? How do you find yourself? Then he said, O oh oh Prophet of Allah, Ya Rasulullah, Arju rahmatallahi wa akhafu dhunubi. I find myself today hoping in the mercy of Allah and fearing the consequences of my sins. Meaning, fearing Allah's anger. And when the Prophet of Allah responded with this statement, the hadith is considered hasan of acceptable authenticity. The Prophet said, لَا يَجْتَمِعَانِ فِي قَلْبِ عَبْدٍ فِي مِثْلِ هَذَا الْمَوْتِنِ إِلَّا أَعْتَاهُ اللَّهُ الَّذِي يَرْجُوا وَأَمِنَهُ مِنَ الَّذِي يَخَافُ They, these two qualities of khawf, fearing and hoping, are not collectively found in the heart of a servant at a moment like this, meaning when you are dying. Except that Allah will grant him that which he hopes for. Allah will grant you his mercy. And the embodiment of Allah's mercy in the year after is Jannah. So Allah will grant you entrance into Jannah. And Allah will protect him from that which he fears. He fears the outcomes of his sins. Meaning he fears Allah's anger. He fears that he will be going to Jahannam. So the true believer always lives in a condition of hope. And a condition of fear. We get certain people, they are deceived. They want to commit any sins. And then they say, Asmusiya problem me. Allah is arhamur rahimin. Allah is the most merciful of all those that have mercy. Allah's mercy is so great that even if you commit sins that are equal to the foam on the ocean, then Allah's mercy can wipe that away. Or everything that they had said is a true statement. But in the wrong context. We like to call this, as Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib said, Kalimatu haqqin yuradu bi al-batil. True statement with a wrongful intent. The time you are supposed to say that is when you are making tawbah. If you have committed a sin already as a done deed, and now you are repenting unto Allah, then you should be focusing on hope. And you should realize that Allah's mercy is endless. While your sins will always be limited. So it doesn't matter what we have done. Even if you killed a hundred men, Allah's mercy is greater than that. But you cannot be approaching a sin and saying, Allah is arhamur rahimin. That is not how it works. At that moment in time, you should be focused on fear in Allah's anger. Fear in Allah's anger. That is one individual that is deceived. Then we have another individual that is deceived. The individual that committed a sin. Perhaps a grave, grave sin. And the graveness of the sin outweighs the conscience of the individual. It weighs heavily on his or her conscience. And they've made tawbah already. But they are telling themselves, this sin is so great, Allah cannot possibly forgive me. This individual also is a deceived individual. If the sin is a done deed, if the sin is a done deed, 
The way of the Muslim is to say, Qadr Allah wa masha'a fa'al, Allah decreed it so. There was no avoiding it. What I have to do is to make tawbah and to move forward. There is no regret beyond the point of tawbah. So there should be a proper hope. Hope in the mercy of Allah after having committed a sin. Fear regarding the anger of Allah before the commission of a sin. This is the way of success as a Muslim. Right. So that generally is the idea of taqwa. I will be elaborating on this idea of taqwa, which is obeying the commandments of Allah and avoiding His prohibitions next week, inshallah. Today I want to focus on the how and the why of taqwa. Now there's quite a bit of examples in the notes which we will be having a look at just now. But what I want to do first is focus on one of the most important ahadith that is comprehensive. It comes in Sahih al-Bukhari. It is comprehensive in that it gives you the one of the best methods of attaining to taqwa. And it also gives you some of the whys, why you should be going the way of taqwa. Now before I continue, why did I decide to take this particular format today? Why, or rather, what, why, or how? All human beings, when you are told to do something, three things immediately come to mind. What must I do? What exactly is it that you want from me? The second thing that comes to mind is, why should I do it? What is in it for me? And the third thing that comes to mind is, how should I do it? If we look at the reason we were created, Allah says in the Quran, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ We have not created mankind or jinkind except for our worship. So we've been created for worship. Three questions immediately arise. What or who is the being that I should worship? Why should I worship this being? What is in it for me? And how should I worship this being? If you look at the Quran, the Prophet Allah in the one hadith says, that Surah Ikhlas, قُلْ وَاللَّهُ أَحَدٌ is a third of the Qur'an. Many people in Cape Town understand this, that if you recite Surah Ikhlas three times, you get the reward of reciting the whole Qur'an. In my understanding, that is not correct. Rather, what the Prophet of Allah is saying, is that the Qur'an is answering the three questions. What, why, and how? What or who should I worship? Why should I worship that being? And how should I worship that being? So the who I should worship, is one third of the Qur'an where Allah discusses aqaid, Islamic beliefs. And Allah tells us who our Allah is. And Surah Ikhlas is one of the surahs that focus on aqaid, Islamic beliefs. So in Surah Ikhlas, you are given a third of the Qur'an, you are told who Allah is. You are told what your aqaid, what your beliefs should be. A second portion of the Qur'an deals with why. Why should I worship Allah? So Allah answers this in three ways. Allah focuses on the three times or tenses. The past, the present, and the future. Allah speaks of people in the past who chose to worship Allah and the good outcome that came their way. Allah speaks of people that chose not to worship and the evil outcome that befell them. Allah speaks of people in the present who choose to worship Him. For example, in the one ayah in the Quran, Allah says, وَمَنْ عَمِلَ صَالِحًا مِنْ ذَكْرِنَا وَأُنْسَى وَمُؤْمِنْ فَلَنُحْيَنَّهُ حَيَاةً طَيِّبًا 
Whoever does pious acts, righteous deeds, does the, the, the act that fits the moment, whether male or female, while that individual is a believer, فَلَنُحْيَنَّهُ حَيَاةً طَيِّبًا Surely we will grant him in this world a good life. Surely we will grant him a good life. And elsewhere now in the Quran, Allah speaks of people who turn away from Allah's remembrance. They turn away from the dhikr of Allah. And Allah says that Allah will cause him to live hayatan dhanka, a restricted life. Hayatan dhanka. So again, Allah is giving us the why. Then Allah moves forward to the future. The future meaning the year after. And Allah speaks of the day of Qiyamah. And Allah speaks of people being sent to Jannah and what they will enjoy. Those that have chosen to obey. And Allah speaks of those who will fail the test because they have chosen not to obey. And them going to Jahannam. And Allah tells us what Jahannam is all about. In these three tenses, stories of the people of the past. Telling what will happen to people that now currently are choosing to obey or choosing to disobey. And speaking of the future Jannah and Jahannam, Allah is providing the why. Allah is telling you why you should choose to worship. The choice is yours. But Allah is giving you the why. Then finally, you've been told who is it that you must worship. You've been told why you should worship. Now you need to be told how to worship. This is known as fiqh or ahkam. And you will notice that many verses in the Quran deals with ahkam. The verses of inheritance, the verses of nikah, the verses of talaq, etc., etc. So the Quran, it answers the three questions. Who should I worship? Why should I worship? And how should I worship? This method of looking at things is very effective. A Quranic method. So we're trying the same method today. First we asked, what is taqwa? I've given you a basic understanding of taqwa. It is when the servant of Allah tries to avoid the anger of Allah by doing what Allah commands and avoiding what Allah prohibits. In simpler terms, it is you building a relationship with Allah where you strive, or you strive to do things that are pleasing to Allah and you strive to avoid things that are displeasing to Allah. Even simpler than that, it is you making deposits and avoiding withdrawals. And Allah knows best. So that is taqwa. Constant deposits and constant avoidance of withdrawals. So this here is the most comprehensive hadith that comes in Bukhari. It starts out with step one to attaining taqwa. Detail of this will come next week inshallah. Today we are only covering it briefly. So the messenger of Allah says, I declare war. Or rather he says, Allah says. Right? I left that portion out. Allah says, I declare war against the one who has hatred towards a friend of mine. I declare war against the one who has hatred towards a friend of mine. The term in Arabic, Man ada li waliyan. He who has adawa enmity towards a wali of mine. In Cape Town, we tend to think a wali is a super Muslim. You get the normal Muslims, and then you get a super Muslim. And the super Muslim, he is known as the wali. If however you study the text of Quran and Hadith, you actually come to realize that all Muslims are considered awliya. According to Quran and Hadith, all Muslims are considered awliya. It is just that some are greater awliya than others. But technically, they are all awliya. And 
When you want to become the friend of Allah, you need to first and foremost be friendly to those who are already his friends. Because Allah works in a simple system. His simple system is this. He doesn't change his old friends for new friends. So if you want to become his friend, you need to fit in with his old friends. If you can't agree with his old friends, then he can't make a place for you. Because the only place he has is with his old friends. So you need to fit in with them. In simpler terms, the Prophet of Allah said it very beautifully, لَا يُؤْمِنُ أَحَدُكُمْ حَتَّى يُحِبَّ لِأَخِيهِ مَا يُحِبُّ لِنَفْسِهِ None of you have says true iman until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. In other ahadith, the Prophet had likened the Muslims to a building. يَشُدُّ بَعْضُ بَعْضَهُ Where every part of the building supports every other part. In other ahadith, the Prophet of Allah had likened the Muslims in their mutual love and consideration for one another to the body. And he had asked the question that if a part of the body is sick, does the remainder of the body sleep at night or is it also awake? And the obvious answer is that it is also awake. So the conclusion of that is, if you want to become the friend of Allah, you need to understand that you have duties towards Allah's other friends. And the first duty that you have towards them is not to hate them. Now this in our time has, become, has reached a level of supreme importance. What do I mean by this? There is hardly an Ibadah in Cape Town. Just for example now. There is hardly an Ibadah in Cape Town except that the Muslims are divided into two groups. Or even more. And most of the time the one group does dislikes the other group. Now is the month of Ramadan, so every night we make Salatu Taraweeh. How many rakahs? So some say 20, some say 8. Those who say 8 have a problem with those who make 20, those who make 20 have a problem with those who make 8. While both is part and parcel of the Sunnah. Obviously it is better to do what to do with the 20, because the 20 engenders a greater amount. And it is the sunnah of the Prophet of Allah and the sunnah of his khulafa. So that would be best. But that doesn't mean you must have a problem with those who make it. Salatu Taraweeh in the first place is a nafal. Nafal means there's no sin if you don't do it. It engenders opportunity if you do it. Great reward if you do it. So you shouldn't even have a problem with somebody who makes zero. So I do have a problem with somebody who makes it. Then also... It being a nafal salah, as the bulk of ulama have said, there is no limit to it also. Eight is recommended, twenty is recommended, but you can make more. The people of Medina used to make thirty-six. And a man came and asked him, Malik, between every four rakahs I find I got a lot of energy. While you are resting, I want to squeeze in an extra two rakahs. Can I do that? And Malik said, if you got the energy, then do it. No problem. So technically there is no limit to salah to taraweeh as well. So why do we dislike one another? Then comes the end of Ramadan. Namunas man kick. Visa man. And before Ramadan started, we had Laylat Nusi Sha'ban. Ruaan. So some Muslims go to the mosque, they consider that piety. Some Muslims stay at home, they consider that piety. The guy who stays at home dislikes the guy who goes to the mosque. The guy who goes to the mosque dislikes the guy who stays at home. And what is the most amazing thing about Laylat Nusi Sha'ban? The bulk of the hadith regarding Laylat Nisi Sha'aban are unauthentic. There is one authentic hadith. 
That hadith says that Allah descends upon that night and Allah forgives his entire ummah except for two people. One, the person that is a mushrik, that describes partners unto Allah, and the other one is a mushahin, the person that has hatred for a Muslim. So if you're in the mosque and you got hatred for a Muslim, you don't get the benefit of Ruanat. And if you had how many got hatred for the Muslim in the mosque, you also don't get the benefit of Ruanat. So everybody is feeling very righteous and very pious, and nobody is getting the actual benefit. The Prophet Allah is sitting in his mosque one day, and he says to the Sahabra al-Annum, the next man to enter this door is a Jannati. I had straight Jannatu. Then the Sahaba sat looking at the door. They want to see who is this person is going to enter. And they're telling themselves, this must be a serious Sahabi. Abu Bakr al-Anu, Umar al-Anu, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Serious Sahabi is going to enter the door now. Then a Sahabi entered the door that they hardly knew. And all of them were amazed. Viz di butaran. And frequently the true wali of Allah is that. In one hadith the Prophet Allah says, Rubba ash'asa aghbara madfu'in bil abwabi law aqsama ala Allahi la abarrahu. There's many a man with disheveled hair. And his aghbara, his body is covered in dust. Madfu'in bil abwabi. He's been chased away from the doors of the people because he's asking them for 20 cents and alman al He's been chased away. But he has such a level by Allah. Law aqsama ala Allahi. Way to take an oath using the name of Allah, la abarrahu. Allah would cause his oath to become true. If you were to lift his hands to the heaven and say, Oh Allah, direct me in what he even stated to my ear, tuana sintakhini, oh Allah, destroy Allah, then Allah's destruction will befall them. And this hadith is sahih, authentic. So frequently the wali of Allah is not the famous guy you know. It's not the famous guy you know. Not the guy sitting on the stage. You understand? It's the individual down there. It's the individual that is cleaning the toilet. It is the gardener. Allahu Akbar. The true wali of Allah. The biggest problem with the wali of Allah in today's time is the wali of Allah doesn't like the wali of Allah. You have the wali of Allah who makes dhikr. He doesn't like the wali of Allah who runs the soup kitchen. He says, that guy is sustaining the physical bodies. But what for Allah? Ruh, dhikr. Then we speak to the soup kitchen wali. He is also the wali of Allah because he's serving the slaves of Allah. Then he dislikes the wali who's making dhikr. I say, what a ruchas da asi bodhi duatas. So the muti soup kitchen said, you're all making a mistake. You are all cogs in one large machine. And it is funny when a cog thinks it's the machine. The one running the soup kitchen is a cog. Needed by the machine. The one that is teaching Vikrullah and occupied in Vikrullah is another cog in the machine. Don't start thinking you are the machine. You are cogs. And the machine needs all those very small little pieces to make the huge watch or the machine that is Islam to run. So let not the wali dislike the wali. Let the wali have love for the other wali. There was an example I was busy making. Someone slipped me. Oh, oh yes, the one about hatred. So, what we are sitting with here is that all these acts of ibadah have an opportunity to draw us closer to Allah. But we have turned it into moments of hatred for our fellow Muslims. What should rather exist is love. 
And this is the thing I actually forgot, the story of the Sahabi. So one Sahabi decided, let me follow that Sahabi. And he followed him everywhere. And he didn't notice him doing anything unique and different from other Sahaba. Then he approached him and told him, my father is angry with me. And I don't want to spend the night at home. I want to spend the night by you. Do you mind? So he said, no problem. Come sleep by me. So he spent the night by that Sahabi. And he watched him the entire night. And he didn't do anything differently. He made the normal tajud that every Sahabi makes. Nothing different. So then he asked him at the end of the night, my father is not really upset with me. We are on good terms. I only said this because the Prophet of Allah had said this. And I've been watching your day. There's nothing exceptional in your day. I've been watching your night. There's nothing exceptional in your night. So what do you do that causes you to be a Jannati? Then the Sahabi says, to be honest with you, I don't do anything different from the normal Sahabi. The only thing I do is before I go to sleep, I look at my heart and I see if there's any hatred in my heart for any Muslim. And if there is, I take that hatred out of my heart and I go to sleep on that condition. And the Prophet of Allah said, for that quality, that individual is going to Jannah. So what needs to happen is this. You need to have the care and concern for every Muslim out there. If a Muslim did you wrong, he or she robbed you, stole your money, your child is not obeying you, etc., etc. Yes, you are angry with them because they have done all of those things. Yes, you might not trust them in certain aspects of your life like business because they have done all of those things. But their rights as a Muslim you must still give them. One of which being, you must greet them when you see them. Another of them being having their care and concern at heart. The other problem you have with them is a separate problem to be sorted out in its own time. So even if I'm in a court case against another Muslim, and the reason for the court case is I want my haq, I want my right, I am entitled to that, but I should still have a care and concern for that Muslim. I must take only what is my haq, I must not take more than that. I cannot justify anything beyond that. So the first stage to becoming the friend of Allah is having love and concern for the friends of Allah. I think in today's time that we have become very weak at. Very, very weak. Everybody has their own form of Islam and their form of Islam is the best. In fact, even when we marry, then husband and wife, they argue. How does the masala work? Leave all of this, brother and sister, in Islam. Ulama have discussed these things, they've come up with solutions. If the one is a Shafi and touch it occurred, then it breaks that individual's wudu. If the other one is a Hanafi and touch it occurred, it does not break that individual's wudu. The law coexists. Now you can ask, who can I wish? Who is the Ian Sabdasbriki and Ian Sabdasbriki? That is not for you to ask. Those are the laws of Sharia. So leave it at that. We need to have unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. Different ways of looking at the same thing, but we still love one another. We still have care for one another. And Allah knows best. Obviously there's a lot of detail that I'm leaving out. So stage number one is having love and concern for our fellow Muslim. The qualities that engender love and concern that we will start discussing next week. Level number two, 
And my servant, oh yes, before I continue. This year, Allah says he declares war against the one who has hatred towards a friend of mine. There are only two cases in Quran and Hadith where Allah declares war against people. This is the sole case in Hadith. And the sole case in the Quran is with regards to people involved in riba. Any people involved in interest in usury, Allah declares war against them as well. And what we mean thereby is specifically the people that demand riba and usury, though to pay it is equally cursed. Right. And my servant does not draw close to me with anything more beloved to me than that which I had obligated him with. So your compulsory duties. So you're striving very hard to love other Muslims. Then you need to fulfill your duties towards Allah. Your compulsory duties in the Arabic language is known as a faridah, singular, and plural, faraid. Like your five times daily. If you want Allah to love you, you must make your five times daily salah. There is no substitute for that. You cannot be making dhikr with a special jama'ah, and then you tell your close friends and you tell your wife, my darling, ik makinium salata make. Ik het gereed style level as a dhakir. That there is deception, brother and sister in Islam. Your faraid never fall away. Your faraid is part and parcel of getting Allah to love you. And if you want Allah to continue to love you, well, you have to continue with the faraid. In the context of a relationship, if I am a husband, it is my duty to make nafaka of my wife. It is not so that when my wife loves me, now I don't need to make nafaka anymore. The nafaka is one of the reasons she loves me. When I stop, when I stop making nafaka, probably the love is going to start slipping away as well. Same on the lady's side. One of your duties is that you must provide physical comfort to your husband. So after you've reached a certain level of happiness with your husband, he clearly loves you. Now you tell yourself, I don't need to provide physical comfort anymore. I must live for me. That is what the, this person is saying. Allah is live for me due to amani zikr. So don't need to give me a salama. You are deceiving yourself. The reason Allah loves you in the first place is because you are making salah. When you stop with those compulsory duties, the love will stop also on Allah's side. So the first thing to do is to do that which is compulsory. So let's say I am a sinner. I'm an outright sinner. But I want to become the friend of Allah. I want to enter the world of taqwa. So the first thing I can do instantly wherever I am is I say to myself, I love every Muslim on the planet. And I want good for every Muslim on the planet. In fact, I want good for all of creation. I do not believe that people are intrinsically bad. I believe that people are intrinsically good. What I dislike of people is that they do certain bad acts. I dislike the act. I do not dislike the person. So that's first step. And do that instantly. Second step, fulfill your duties towards Allah and your duties towards his slaves. Do not think that nafal can take the place of fart. So a man on Laylatul Qadr night, spending the entire night in tahajjud, then just before fajr he goes and he sleeps. That Laylatul Qadr night has been rendered useless by what we have done now. Because you have not prioritized you must prioritize and do the fard first. And then we squeeze in the nawafil. To give you a different understanding of the same. 
Back in the day, people did a thing known as time management. You learned how to manage your time. Then many people realized they were very efficient, but not effective. They were doing a whole lot of things, but nothing that were fulfilling their life goals and life aims. Then they kicked away time management. Lost time management, guys, last now. They brought in a new science. Life management. Now, life management is closer to what Islam wants. Because now the question was asked, what is important? Fit that in your life first. And then fit the rest around it. Some people explain it as follows. He comes with a glass jar. And then he has a few rocks. And he has grains of sand. The first thing he does is he pours grains of sand into the glass jar. Right? Now the jar is full. Then he takes the rocks and he tries to put them in the jar. Is there a place for the rocks? No. Right? He empties the jar. He places the rocks into the jar. Now he tries to put sand. Will the sand fit? And the answer is, yes, it will fit. What are the rocks? The important things in your world. The things that will achieve and obtain for you your life aims. Those things that when you are on your deathbed, you will be able to tap yourself and say, MashaAllah, at least I have done. And what are those small grains of sand? Those are the waste of time stuff we do on a daily basis. If you put your waste of time stuff in the glass first, there's no place for the rocks. But if you put the rocks in first, there's always place for the sand. Now notice what Allah does. Allah obligates us with five times daily salah. Rocks. Right? So what happens to the Muslim? He revolves his grains of sand around it. If you ask a Muslim, uh, let's say his name is Ibrahim. Ibrahim, will you go visit for nine months? When can I come? Then what does he do normally? Go to Maghrib. Go for You'll notice Muslims always speak about salahs. Whenever they deal with times, it's always salahs. Because the salah is the rock. He makes sure that the rock is in his, in his world first. Then he puts the rest. So Allah is teaching us via salah. Allah is teaching us via this hadith. My dear Muslim, my friend, you want to be my friend. I want my friends to be successful. So prioritize your life. Do that which is more important first. And then you do the rest. Do the things that will get you what you want in life. Will watching TV get you what you want in life? Will spending time in a mall get you what you want in life? So you need to ask yourself. So prioritize. And Allah knows best. So the first thing to do is the fara'it. Now as you will learn, avoiding of the haram is part and parcel of the fara'it. Right? I will just briefly mention it. If it is compulsory to do a thing, it's called fart. If it is compulsory to avoid a thing, it's called haram. So haram is just the opposite side of a fart. And actually, fart is the opposite side of haram also. Some things are haram to do, and some things are haram to avoid. Like your five times daily salah is haram to avoid. It's haram not to do it. So fart and haram is actually the same term. The only thing is, what are we focusing on? And we will have a look at that again. So first and foremost, I got love of the Muslims in my heart. I'm fulfilling my compulsory duties. 
I am starting the connection of love with Allah. And it is growing stronger. Now, I want to go for that extra mile. I want Allah to really love me now. So what should I do? And he, meaning the slave or servant, continues to draw close to me, Allah, with optional acts, nawafil, which is the plural of nafila or nafal, until I love him. Until I love him. So let's try this in a relationship. I married a lady. It is my duty that I must make nafakah. So I make proper nafakah, mashaAllah. So she feels I'm a fairly good husband. Does he love me? Where's the love going to come? Does the love come with the nafaka? Not frequently in our time. The love comes with the nafal. The rose that wasn't required. In fact, some for once a suslam, Allah say for a man, they shall make no it's kupi. Don't say, but I mark nafaka, I kupi, it's up your birthday, I kupi, I'm going to say anniversary. No, that's not what you do. So what is he actually telling him? That's if I right, man. If you want me to love you, nafo. <laughs> nafo. Nafo chocolate. Nafo roses. Nafo I love you. I love you so much. So I keep it. Unexpected in a hug. Nafo. That is where the man I, 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 I will love is found. That is where the woman I will love is found. So the relationship is... Is secured with the fara'it. Salaam is secured. The opportunity is given. But where the love now really starts flowing is in the nafal. So I'm making my five times daily salah. So I've secured my relationship with Allah as a believer. But what a type of believer. So now I'm starting with the nafals. The nafals. The sunnah before fajr. Sunnah before dhuhr, after dhuhr, before asr, before maghrib. Oh, after Maghrib, right? Uh, I mentioned before Maghrib in the Shafi Madhab, it's sunnah to make two rakats before Maghrib as well, with some mosques allowed. And then before Isha and after Isha. So, Salatu Tarawih, Fardu Nafal. Nafal. So why am I doing it? Because I want Allah to love me. Allah doesn't really require me to do it. I'm already a Muslim, and inshallah I will go to paradise. But, I fear Allah's anger. Because I'm doing some other things perhaps that is displeasing to him. And I open Allah's mercy and I want Allah's love. So now I will be performing Salatu At-Taraweeh. Same with the recital of Quran. Is it compulsory to recite Quran during the month of Ramadan? No. There's no ayah or hadith that says, Yaymut bata. So why are the ulama and the pious people reciting so much Quran? It is said that Imam Shafi, rahimahullah, used to make two khatams of the Qur'an every day. One khatam in salah, one khatam outside of salah. Why is he doing that? He is speaking to Allah using Allah's own words. In technical, or rather in simple terms, he is loving Allah. So since he is loving Allah, Allah loved him back. It's as simple as that. And that is found in the nawafir. And Allah knows best. So there are three basic steps then. Step number one, love for our fellow believers, compulsory duties, and our nawafil. Now see what happens. Oh yes, before that. Okay, let's keep this. 
Let's come back to that. The, the same hadith continues. And it starts now giving benefits. I have benefits in the notes as well. But I want to give you the benefits that come in the hadith that teaches you how to obtain taqwa. So Allah says, And when I love him, this person has now become my beloved. Right? Now this hadith doesn't mention it, but it comes in another authentic hadith. Then Allah calls Jibreel, the archangel, the highest of all the angels. Sahibu Sir and Namus, the secretary to all the prophets and the messengers, the bearer of wahi. So Allah calls him, and Allah says to him, Jibreel, I love that person. Then Jibreel, what he does, is he goes everywhere in the Sama and he tells all the angels, love that person. Then he goes down to earth, and he tells the inhabitants of earth, love that person, because Allah loves that person. So when I love him, I cause everyone now to start loving him, except the mu'anid, the stubborn resistor. If you are a person of light, so Allah is loving you, then you will get a person of darkness. Darkness cannot love light. So that is not going to happen. Right? But love loves, or rather light loves light. Right? And when I love him, I become his hearing with which he hears, his sight with which he sees, his hand with which he grasps, and his foot with which he walks. This hadith is a very interesting hadith. There are certain things that this hadith cannot mean. This hadith cannot mean that you become Allah. Clear cut. Cannot mean that. This hadith also does not mean that your ear is Allah's ear, and your eye is Allah's eye, and your hand is Allah's hand, and your foot is Allah's foot. It doesn't mean anything like that. So this hadith cannot be taken in a literal sense. The hadith must be understood in a figurative sense. There are many figurative meanings that ulama have attested to this hadith. One of the figurative meanings that Allah has attested or the ulama have attested to this hadith is that this person reaches such a level of obedience to Allah that his ears only hear that which is halal. His eyes only see that which is halal. His hands only touch that which is halal. And his feet only walk towards that which is halal. The great Ali Muhammad ibn Sirin, the interpreter of dreams, he says, I was so fearful of zina, even in my dreams when I had an ihtilam, this now, a wet dream as they call it. If a lady were to approach me, I would ask her in my dream, are you my wife? And if she says no, I would turn away. So what does he mean? He's trying to tell you, even when I'm asleep, when I don't have the power of reasoning, even then I don't commit sins. Even though technically dreams are not considered sins. You can dream whatever you like, and it will not be a sin. But he has reached that level, that even in his dreams he retains consciousness. And he avoids that, which would be unlawful had he been awake. And Allah knows best. So you get a level like that. Now, to be honest with you, only the Ambiya truly achieve this level. They are only that achieve this level, but as normal human beings, we are not ma'asum, protected from sin. So we will commit sin every now and then. And this brings in the issue of tawbah. It is in your notes. I won't discuss it today, inshallah. Another way to look at this hadith 
as ulama have stated, is to say that this individual is now in ma'iyatullah. This individual now enters the company of Allah. And Allah is constantly with this individual, guiding his eyes, guiding his ears, guiding his hands and guiding his feet. He only sees that which is beneficial, he only hears that which is beneficial, he only touches that which will bring him benefit, he only goes to those places that brings him benefit. And here I want to pause for a moment, and I want to ask the following question. Do we all see the same thing? Do we all hear the same thing? Like at this moment in time, let's assume there's a hundred people in this hall. How many understandings of what is being said are there? One? Are we all understanding what is being said the same? Or are we understanding it 100 different ways? Based upon our backgrounds, based upon our levels of intelligence, based upon our prior experience with the text, based upon whether we're falling asleep because we're tired, there's a lot of things, variables, that could be considered. If I were to consider only one variable, the human mind cannot fully take in everything that surrounds it. So what the human mind does in the sense of sensory perception is that it focuses only on certain things. It sees only certain things that for some reason or the other is important to that particular human. To give you a quick example, have you noticed that when you buy a new car, you suddenly see that car everywhere? Now, why was, where, was, where was that car yesterday? The car was there. Just you weren't seeing it. Then the moment you decided to buy that model, then it entered your sensory perception, your level of attention. And you were suddenly drawn to the fact that those cars are out there. So the cars were there, always. It's just you're starting to see it only now. So the true slave of Allah, the one that has entered the love of Allah, he sees what others don't see. He hears what others don't hear. As comes in one hadith, اِتَّقُوا فِرَاسَةَ الْمُؤْمِنِ فَإِنَّهُ يَنْظُرُ بِنُورِ اللَّهِ Fear the insight of the true believer because he sees with the light of Allah. In the Quran, Allah speaks of these people also. And Allah says, فِيهِ آيَاتٌ لِلْمُتَوَسِّمِينَ In these things are signs for people who see the patterns. People who see the patterns. My dear brothers and sisters in, the Quran, uh, in Islam, what makes the Quran modern? In fact, supra-modern. The Quran preempts modernity. What makes the Quran so modern? What makes the Quran modern is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Everything that will ever happen on this dunya, the Quran is already speaking about it. Because humans do the same thing over and over again. They might be doing it differently, but they're still doing it. A good example that I like to use is, some people say that there was a time when we lived in caves. Right? Let's work on that assumption. We were cavemen. So Mr. Caveman, how did he acquire a cave woman? So he's living in a cave, and he wants to acquire a cave woman. They say, I don't say, he used to take a club, then he hits her over the head, boom, and then he drags it to his cave. Right? So what do we do in today's time? We still have caves. Just we call it houses. And if that guy drove a dinosaur, we're still driving them. Just we call it cars. 
And if we hit her with a club over the head, we're still doing it. We're just calling it roses or chocolates. We're still doing it. We're still taking away their senses and then dragging them to the cave. So see, Ian man say, Nikapan, Kabil to Kabaltu, Fatan Aristalto. Okay, it's not a good joke. <laughs> but I just wanted to say that the mentality still abounds. The mentality that the idea is, I need to convince her, she becomes my wife, she goes with me. Because that's what our man works. Man works, I see, I want. I see, I want. Right? So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Humans will always be wanting a cave, protection against the elements. Humans will always be wanting things like cars, uh, technological advancements that will allow them to do more, reach further, go further. So that will always exist. And then humans, as, uh, whether they like it or not, they need to share life's experiences with somebody. They need to love. It's part and parcel of who we are. It's part and parcel of what we are. The difference in Islam is we direct you to the true way of doing it. And in this context of taqwa, the true way of loving is love the creator of love first. And let your love for every other human being emanate from your love for Allah. Love for the sake of Allah, hate for the sake of Allah. Love for the sake of Allah, hate for the sake of Allah. This is known as al-wala wal-bara. Al-wala wal-bara. Right, so this is my first benefit. I become a guided individual, not on the level of the Ambiya. The Ambiya were ma'asum, totally free of sin. But I become somewhat a guided individual. I start seeing things, I start understanding things that other humans don't understand. And Allah knows best. The second benefit, if he asks me, if the slave of mine asks me, give me, I will definitely give him what he wants. And if he seeks refuge from something, I will surely grant him such refuge. So he wants my love. And then there's things of the dunya he wants. There's other things he wants. I give him that. He's fearing my anger. And there's things on the dunya that is causing him to fear also. I will save him from those things. Because I am the one that gives. And I am the one that takes. I give the good. I give the bad. I take the good. I take the bad. Since he is the right person. I give him the good. And I take from him that which is bad. Had he been the sinner, I would have been sending bad his way. And I would have been stripping the baraka, the khair from his life. So he asks, I give him what he wants. He seeks refuge, I grant him such refuge. Yeah, you must be asking yourself, but if this wali is there, then he can ask for Kiyama not to come. And Kiyama cannot come. You can ask for Allah to guide the entire ummah and they will be guided. You can ask for Allah to, to, you can ask of Allah to feed the entire ummah and they will be fed. But we know there are such people but the entire ummah is not fed. War still exists. Muslim still is Muslim. Yeah, you need to understand the following, my dear brother and sister in Islam. Allah has already stated in Quran and Hadith certain things that will happen. Those things that Allah has stated cannot be changed via dua. So Allah has already said that Qiyamah will come. So when Allah says that He gives the wali whatever He wants, He means accept that. If the wali asks, Qiyamah mustn't come, that's an exception. Because that's already said, will come. 
If the wali asks, uh, no person must go to Jahannam. You cannot ask that. Allah created Jahannam for a purpose. And some people must go there. So there's no such thing as, no one goes to Jahannam. That cannot exist. It's already stated. It's already stated that most human beings will go to Jahannam. So saving the bulk of humanity from Jahannam, the wali's dua cannot help over there as well. Saving particular individuals, those that you love, inshallah, the wali's dua will work over there and Allah knows best. So this is benefit number two. Benefit number one, the guided individual. Benefit number two, things come your way. Things come your way. It is amazing the way the kuffar think. Recently, a lady wrote a book, I think her name is Rhonda Byrne. And the book is called The Secret. The Secret. What is the secret? Do good things. Send it out into the world. And the world will send good things back. What a secret is an khurat in the Quran. If you do good, it is to the benefit of your own soul. And if you do evil, it is to the harm of your own soul. So the good you send out into the world, it is sent back to you. And the bad you send out into the world, it is sent back to you. All of these things multiplied. Then also, because the individual is a kafira, they don't want to give Allah Allah's credit. They say it is sent out into the world and the world sends it back. It is all the brain. There's somebody in charge of this world that is saying that things must go back. So we're living in a time where people are acknowledging Allah's effects, but they don't want to acknowledge Allah. So they're telling us secrets that we've known for thousands of years. And while they're telling those secrets, they're mixing it with hundreds of lies. Benefit number three. And this is the end of the hadith. It's in Bukhari 6502. And I do not hesitate to do anything which I will certainly do. So will Allah do it? He's going to do it. But he hesitates to do it. But is he going to do it? Yes, he's going to do it. As much as I hesitate to draw the soul of the true believer who dislikes death, as I dislike causing him displeasure. So now you are the beloved of Allah. You are a guided individual. If you ask, Allah gives. If you seek protection, Allah provides. Now Allah has got your care and concern. Now there's no way to really meet Allah but via dying. But we are human beings. We have been created with the instinct of survival. So it is natural that we detest death. We are afraid of dying. Even the most brave individual that tells himself that he will face his death bravely, when he looks death in the eye, then his mind goes, who can I survive? Who can I survive? It is part and parcel of who you are and what you are. And Allah, because Allah doesn't want to cause you displeasure, you are the beloved of Allah, Allah hesitates. And hesitation here is not to be taken in its literal sense. Again, it means figuratively. It means Allah dislikes taking your soul. But your soul has to be taken. Why does Allah dislike taking your soul? Because you do not want to give up the soul. Not in the sense that you do not want to meet Allah, but in the sense that you fear death. And here I have to say, that whether you are a pious person or an impious person, you have very good reason to fear death. If you are an impious person, 
It is because that death will be a painful death. The angels of Adam come to take your soul. And they don't help your soul to release itself from the body. They tell the soul, come out. And if the soul struggles to come out, they start eating it with mallets. This is if you are impious. If you are a pious person, the angels of mercy arrive. And they draw your soul. But the problem with drawing your soul is that your soul is attached to all the limbs of your body. Like your nervous system. And all of those parts must be broken loose. So the Prophet of Allah in the one hadith, he says, that the drawing of a soul of a pious person is the equivalent of a sheet, a linen, laken, wat gegooi word, op sale wat opstaan. Swords facing heaven. You take a sheet, you throw it over those swords, sharp swords, and you pull it. What happens to the sheet? The sheet gets torn into pieces. So technically that is what happens with the soul. So the angels of mercy, they help you, but it is a painful experience. And Allah knows best. So he detested the death, but still Allah will take him. It is just that there is a figurative hesitation. Thus then are the three main benefits of taqwa, of being in that relationship with Allah, where you become the wali of Allah. A mutaqi is a wali. Now, with regards to Allah's laws, you are told that you must do certain things, you are told not to do certain things. If Allah tells you sternly, do, then that thing becomes a fard, compulsory. If you fail to do it, you are a sinner. Right? If you fail to do a compulsory act, you are a sinner. If Allah tells you don't, and Allah tells you sternly, don't do it. And then you do it, then you are a sinner. If you look at it, compulsory and prohibited are the opposite of one another. Compulsory to do, compulsory to not do. Right? So technically prohibited is compulsory. So it's other face. And if I were to look at it from a prohibited angle, prohibited to do and prohibited to abstain, meaning compulsory. Compulsory is the opposite of prohibited. So wherever in Quran and Hadith you are told, fulfill your obligations, it automatically means avoid haram also. And wherever you are told in Quran, avoid haram, it automatically means do that which is compulsory. Because it is haram not to do that which is compulsory. And it is fard to avoid that which is haram. Is everyone with me? Alright. So this is where Allah is stern. Allah is going to be angry if you don't do the compulsory act. And Allah is going to be angry when you do the prohibited act. Then Allah tells you do, but not sternly. A recommendation. Please do. And I would prefer that you do. But if you don't, I will not be angry with you. So this is known as mustahab. Masnoon, mandub. Sometimes called sunnah. And then the don't. Again, not sternly. Allah says, please don't do this. But if you do, I won't be angry with you. It will not be a sin. This is known as makruhun. As people call it in Cape Town, makru. Makru. If you don't do, sin. If you do, sin. If you don't do, not a sin. 
If you do, not a sin. Right? Everyone is with me. The four laws of Allah saying do and don't. Then there's a fifth one. This is loosely called mubah. Mubah is where Allah is indifferent. Allah doesn't care what you do. Right? Let's try this. Compulsory. If you're going to marry, let's try nikah as an example, you must marry a believer. So automatically it's haram to marry a disbeliever. This is in relation to a lady. If you are a male, you are allowed to marry a Christian lady or a Jew, Jewish lady, Jewess. There are conditions to all of that. There's another place to discuss that. All right. So this is the command to do. That is the command not to do. All right. And in the framework of nikah. Then Allah recommends in the framework of nikah, marry a pious lady or a pious male. It's recommended. But what if I don't? Do I commit a sin? No. And Allah dislikes if you marry somebody that is not what we would consider pious. But it would not be a sin. What about indifferent? I marry a fat guy. Or a thin guy. Or a tall guy or a short guy. Guy with red hair, guy with white hair. So over there, Allah is indifferent. Fat or thin means nothing to Allah. Red hair, black hair, brown hair, all of those things mean nothing to Allah. That's got to do with your flavor. <laughs> and Allah got no problem with your flavor. So yeah, you must marry in accordance with what you know. So let's try it again. Wise to do, stupid to not do. Stupid to do, wise to avoid. Right? Ultimately. Also wise to do, but not as wise as that. Also stupid to do, but not as stupid as that. Neither wise nor stupid. Study your circumstances and your flavor. And this will determine whether it is wise or stupid. Like for example, if you marry a fat man, while you like thin men, then obviously you're stupid. Because you're marrying contrary to your flavor. So over here, Allah is not telling you what is wise or stupid. Over there, Allah is telling you what is wise or stupid. In compulsory, is wise to do. If you don't, negative effects will come your way always. In prohibited, you're not supposed to do. If you do, negative effects will come your way always. In recommended, most of the time negative effects will come. Sometimes not. In dislike, most of the time negative effects will come if you, if you, if you, if you do it. And sometimes it will not. Now notice the colors. Five things. One is red. The other four are green. This one is red because it is the only thing that if you do it, Allah is angry with you. If you do this, he is not angry. Do it, not angry. Do it, not angry. Do it, not angry. So the term that applies to all these four is halal. Halal to do. Halal to do, halal to do, halal to do, halal to do. Haram. To do. Right. If you are a Hanafi, there is a further division. They don't have makru as makru only, they have it as tanzi and tahrimi. And tahrimi is also a sin. And they have fard and wajib as two separate things. And 
Wajib is compulsory and fard is compulsory. The difference between fard and wajib, if you, commit, uh, if, you, if you deny the compulsion of a fard, you leave the fold of Islam. If you deny the compulsion of a wajib, you don't leave the fold of Islam. That is for, 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 you, for those amongst you that are followers of the Hanafi school of thought. What I would like to do now, okay, my time's up? Sorry? Time is up, right, okay. So what I've done in the notes is I've mentioned a number of worldly benefits that accrue to the person, the individual that attains to taqwa. I want you to go through it. I've only selected a handful of them. There are are some 11 worldly benefits. There's about four akhirah benefits. But the benefits are endless in amount. What I've tried to do is I've tried to take those benefits that is mentioned in the Quran alone. But there are numerous, numerous other benefits. The main thing that you need to understand here is this. You, as a human, is a particular type of an animal in the jungle. And I ask Mahaf if you want to misunderstand what I'm saying now. Right? I don't actually mean you are an animal, animal, a dung. I don't mean it in that sense. I mean you are a loving being. And no one knows you the way Allah knows you. Because Allah is the one that made you. Allah knows where your happiness lies. And Allah knows where your unhappiness lies. Your happiness lies in obeying Allah and avoiding that which he tells you to avoid. If you follow this lifestyle, you are guaranteed happiness. You are not guaranteed an easy life. Because you didn't come to this dunya to experience ease and relax. That is Jannah. But this dunya is also not Jahannam. So you didn't come here outright to suffer also. You will live a life of happiness, though there might be certain normal toil in your life. That is part and parcel of this world. Any movement away from Allah's teachings is a movement towards misery and a movement towards happiness, unhappiness. And to give you a quick example, some years back, people started a movement that is known today as the feminist movement. Now, yeah, I just want to make a, a quick bridge. The bridge is this. Are we to consider women our equals? Yes. Are we to give women all the rights that they are entitled to? Yes. Are we to consider women men? Obviously not. Why should women make men their standard? We want to do what men do. Why should you make men your standard? While you are what you are. The feminist movement is, the most, is one of the most successful movements in the history of mankind. But in its success, it has only brought misery to its followers. Go to the western world, ask women whether they are happy. Ask that one question. Are you happy? As you get out, with the path of your kindness, and kijk je naar jou, and kijk je naar jou kindness. Ask them that particular question. They free, yes, they are free to a certain degree, but freedom comes at a price, and certain freedoms you're not supposed to have. In the Quran, Allah speaks of hududullah, the limits of Allah. You are not supposed to cross the limits of Allah. But you are free to do within the limits of Allah whatever you like. 
Total freedom is anarchy. Total freedom doesn't bring happiness. Total freedom brings unhappiness. As a woman, if you look into your heart, what do you really want? Do you want to achieve more than your husband? Does that make you happy? You can pat your back and say, Does it make you happy? It's a nice thing to earn money. Eh? It's a nice thing to earn a lot of money. And it might be a nice also to earn more than your husband. But is it a rock or is it a grain of sand? What are the rocks in your world? The rocks in your world is not found with feminism. The rocks in your world is found with Islam. Deep down as a lady, you want a male that cares for you. There are certain negatives that arise due to modern life. Sometimes this male doesn't want to give me money. Sometimes he tells me, say, Suki, you ATM. Now because that is bothering me, now I want to work. But technically deep down, I wish I had a male that worked for me. Where I don't need to work, and he sees my needs and he fulfills it without me asking. He gives me money even before I ask him for money. Technically, if you wanted Jannah on earth, that is what you would have wanted. That is what you would have wanted. But since Satan causes us to be filled with fear, we take certain steps like feminism. So I'm going to say it again. Taqwa is the means to happiness. If you attain to taqwa, you are a happy person. Your liquid core, the core that is on the inside, is happy and content. Ready to experience the benefits of the Qabr. Ready to experience the benefits of Jannah. Might be fearing death, as is mentioned over there. But definitely ready to meet Allah and definitely happy. Any movement away from taqwa is a movement away from happiness. And I have to end there. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم ولسائر المسلمين المسلمات استغفروه إنه الغفور الرحيم